everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Felt a great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Why do you think you're a dork? I don't think you're a dork. I don't think Mom thinks you're a dork. Mike thinks I'm a dork. Mike is a dork. So am I. Well, if it's any consolation, I love you. And if this guy can't see in you all the beautiful and wonderful things that I see, then he's got the problem. I know. It just hurts. That's why they call them crushes. Uh, welcome to Everything Old is New Again. How about that for a beginning here? Uh, you're here with uh, Douglas Viviani. Of course, David Cohen's unfortunately under the weather, cannot make it today. But that's okay, because I have a special guest star co-host for the week. And you just heard a little bit of him. That's a little piece of 16 Candles. We have the privilege of speaking today with uh, what some people say, and he's more than that, but we can just start off with the idea of America's dad, Paul Dooley. He's performed stand-up comedy. He's acted on stage, television, movies since the early 50s. You definitely know this gentleman when you see him. He's premiered in television in 1962, and he's continued to appear up until Modern Family this year, and certainly is going to be beyond that. Uh, I count 132 TV shows. Not appearances, shows in total, including appearances on Get Smart, Electric Company, which we'll talk about, Sesame Street, Golden Girls, ALF, Wonder Years, My Soul Called Life, Grace Under Fire, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, The uh, Practice, and of course, Curb Your Enthusiasm, we've seen him there as well. So, uh, well, let's turn to the movies for a moment, by the way. Paul Dooley's appeared in, uh, just to start a little bit here, The Out of Towners, Slapshot, Breaking Away, Popeye. 16 Candles, Runaway Bride, Insomnia is Sarge to your kids, let's say, in Cars 1, 2, and 3, just to name a few of the 80 movie appearances he's made to date. Welcome to Everything Old is New Again, Paul Dooley. Hello, I'm old and new again. <laughs> Aren't we all? That's, we're reinventing ourselves all the time in some ways. Uh, I'll tell you, that was um, something that was was, what would you say, impressive to me when I was in reviewing all of the material that you have done, uh, you know, yeah. people look at you and they say, oh, yeah, I know him from the Wonder Years, or I know him from, you know, different appearances here and there, uh, but certainly breaking away, I would think, as a dad, and in Molly Ringwald's, uh, you know, 16 Candles as a dad and so forth, you've done much more than that, but do you get that? Does that follow you, that that uh, kind of moniker that, you know, you're, you know, a, a good dad well, figure on the... Uh, those two films kind of put me on the map, especially breaking away. And also, it, uh, 16 Candles made me the go-to guy to be the dad uh, to female actresses uh, in the movies. And uh, I've done a lot of things, a lot of them I like, but my favorite one was Breaking Away. How about that? Okay, that, that, so we hit upon the the right thing there, because it was fun and funny and also uh, in some way uh, touching where a dad that really, like a, a lot of dads, let's say, uh, I think some now, but also we're a little more open, I think, today. But back then, that the, the dad in, in, in that movie couldn't really 100% express his feelings, so uh, he was able to do it in a sort of backwards way, you know, and uh, and we really reflected well, they society. Stoic. They were always stoic, those kind of guys. Right, exactly. I think I think they thought to show any emotion was weakness. There you go, and you, you certainly presented that in that movie, and then and developed. My dad was a 
among them, and I use him as a template for me when I, I play uh, fathers, because if there's a little bit grouchy or cranky, uh, I just use my dad. <laughs> I'm sure he, he's happy to, to hear that, so to speak, where he is now. I'm sure he's looking down and really enjoying your work and your, your, your tip of your cap uh, to your family and, and, uh, and, and growing up. Uh, you know, you never forget the My things, you know. never even knew I was doing him. He, just, he wasn't aware of that. Ah, but he knows now in some ways, if we think about it, right? Uh, now, listen, I, I just want to take a little bit of a clip here. It's too very short, but I want to bring a, a little bit of Breaking Away and Deep Space Nine together, and I'll tie them together in a minute. So let's just play this. It'll take um, 20 seconds or so. Let's listen to what we have here. Pop. Sure. Can I have the Saturday off? Hell no. Uh, just this once, Pop. I, the Italians are coming Saturday. I don't care if the second coming is coming. We're poor, but we're honest. All I want is a refund. Refund? Refund? Are you crazy? I'll do as you ask, on one condition. That you don't ask me this favor as a mentor or a superior officer, but as a father asking his son. So even the dad theme went through your appearance on Deep Space Nine, appearances as uh, Garrick's dad. Well, and that was he, pre he presented himself as a, a nice, warm, friendly guy, but he was a, a pain in the ass. <laughs> Evil, in fact. It, it had to be interesting for you to play that, where it was a kind of a not straightforward role, right? He was a kind of a playing it, as you say, he was on presenting himself one way, but behind the scenes, he was another. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was told to me to be a guy like a, an American CIA head who had retired and is now pulling the strings from the outside, like a kingmaker. You know, it's a rare thing for me to play that guy who didn't have any humor, really. Uh, just a kind of an evil quality. Yeah, but even so, there was a, at the end, this is, you know, maybe not everybody remember the exact scene and so forth, but at the end of uh, the life of that character, who basically yeah. did not uh, own the, the the his son, so to speak, did not own the ownership in, in the fact that he had a son, this Garrick, uh, at the very end, in his own way, he did acknowledge uh, that he did yeah, have some... A, little, a bit of a change-up, yeah. Yeah, so that, you might want to tune into that that episode. It really is touching and memorable. And that's what I want to ask you about is is to to appear on a show like that and to appear on lots of shows that you've done uh, and be able to create a memorable character where, let's face it, Deep Space Nine had created so many characters on their own of series, you know, characters that are there every week that the audience gets to know. Now, you're coming in for a couple episodes here and there, but you're memorable. I is there some trick to that? How do you come on board and be able to stand up to, let's say, the the characters that are already so well known by by the audience. I don't think it's a trick. I think there's a certain amount of talent involved. <laughs> I would think so too. Uh, yeah, and I just do. I just always do the best I can with what I've been given. And then, and then, you know, as a character actor, you're sometimes given a kind of a uh, the the TV show or the movie is is never about the character actor. He's a supporting actor, so. Uh, He'll have to take a scene with one one scene with ten or twelve lines and kind of do something with it. I've often told young actors what I did. I sometimes say a, a part is handed to me and it's like a a, a damp uh, washcloth and I have to squeeze it and wring out a little humor, a little pathos, a little uh, kind of attention getting. 
something I have to do on my own to make a dull part a little more interesting. Right, and that's definitely uh, something. I mean, like it did just off the top of my head, the Wonder Years there. We probably don't recall. You know, everybody's listening. You might or might not have this this one appearance of this soccer coach who was uh, in the day he was a big football coach. He was sort of his last year of teaching, and this new sport of soccer comes around. And I would guess, I'm going to guess now, you had like five lines in that appearance, but you're reading the paper and the way you're walking around and the looks that you made and so forth for that particular yeah. episode was memorable. So I, th- I get what you're saying, right? That, that is a good example of what you're saying? Yeah, that's. Uh, I w- didn't have a whole lot of lines, and he was a, sort of a negative-sounding character, but I think people found him interesting. I still get the occasional uh, request for an autograph for a guy who loved the Wonder Years. Uh, and I'm one of those, I'll tell you. And that's why I, I guess I remember that. Uh, I mean, think about it. I remember one episode with you there off the top of my head like that. It's, it, it, it is uh, something that if you grew up, I guess, in the 60s and 70s, uh, that certainly show reflects what you saw and you did see coaches like that. Uh, the other side of the fence is in the 70s, 1971, you created the electric company. I don't know if anybody really remembers that, that you did that or knows that. At age 43, by the way, after doing lots of other stuff, which we'll talk about, but if you don't remember the electric company, it's more or less uh, skits and uh, a Sesame Street for older kids. Um, how, how did you come up with creating that? That's so interesting. Well, they called me in and, and talked to me. And I think it's because they knew me. I had a long stretch, in fact, 10 years or more, of writing radio commercials uh, that were humorous based on improvisation with uh, two partners of mine from Second City. We were all Second City. And I had a background uh, of doing short segments which were informative in that they talked about the sponsor or the, the product, you know. So I was a perfect kind of a guy for them to have. But at first I wasn't the... Uh, head writer there were six or seven of us writers and we wrote in limbo for um, about uh, six weeks they said write anything you want to as long as you think it would help kids learn to read and the stuff that I came up with was seemed to be more uh, useful to them and 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 uh, funny more funny in particular a whole host of different characters and then one day they said okay you're the head writer then the other six guys hated me because <laughs> right. you get promoted over somebody. Right. It's like uh, Yogi Berra when he became the manager of the Yankees, right? He was great as the catcher and the fellow <laughs> teammate, but afterwards, now he's in charge. Yeah. It's a little difficult. Unfortunately, we'll uh, have to get, pick this up in a moment because we're out of time. On Everything Old is New Again with Paul Dooley. We'll be back right after this. Everything Old is New Again. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. My gosh, are people still listening to the radio? You betcha. Yes, they are. Absolutely. And that's why you're, you know, what you're doing right now, uh, everything old is new again. Yes, it is. It's new. It's something that people have not done for a while and say, oh, my gosh, I could listen to that. They're creative people, and that's what's wonderful. Uh, Welcome back to Everything Old is New Again. Well, before I announce who that is, we'll play a little bit of uh, This Is Your Life, I guess, with our guest, Paul Dooley. Does that voice sound familiar? Put you on the spot here. Yeah. 
Bob Caliban, right? That's right. One and of my good buddies. How about that? And he's been on the show a couple of times. He's a terrific gentleman, a, a real fun man. He was in. We did a show, uh, a couple of shows with him and Paul Hecht about uh, Radio Mystery Theater, which he was on many, many times, a radio show. I bring him up because I saw and found uh, some tapes here from uh, 1982 and uh, let's say the early 80s. The bottom line in New York City, where you and Mr. Caliban were on stage performing different commercials, which I think you just referenced previously a little bit towards uh, when we were talking about the creation of the electric company and what you had done. Let me just um, tease the audience a little bit. Let's play a smidge, small clip of you two together on stage, and let's explore that a little bit. Majesty rolling a majesty roll on five. Crest has been shown to be an effective decay preventive dentifrice when used in a conscientiously applied program of oral hygiene and regular professional care. I love that, Bob. Keep the roll, but it's a little too upper crust, maybe more of an average. Crest has been shown to be an effective decay preventive dentifrice when used in a conscientiously applied program of oral hygiene. Hold the roll, Bob. Same thing. Bring it home. Back to New York. Crest has been shown to be an effective decay preventive dentifrice when used in a conscientiously applied program. To New York, maybe Midwest. Crest has been shown to be an effective decay preventive dentifrice when used in a conscientiously applied program of oral hygiene and regular professional care. A little General Mills, don't you think? Uh, it goes on and on. That's a, you know, a producer or let's say a director of a commercial trying to get the best out of his voice actor. Well, and I, I picked one of the most busy and the most talented people to be in that show with me. And, uh, and Bob could do almost any dialect. He could do impressions. And that show was terrific. It was meant for one night. And although we never got around to it, the Broadway producers wanted to bring it right to Broadway. But because of a bunch of things about clearance and waivers, you know, about using certain things, uh, it didn't happen. But uh, it was really a big hit on one night. And the manager of the nightclub had invited a ton of advertising people there. And we were just sitting ducks for our humor because we were making fun of them and the commercials. And, and particularly people who made their own commercials. You know, they were hilarious. Yes, and, uh, like a crazy idiot. a very, very good buddy of mine, and I worked with him. Commercials written by other people and commercials we did, we put together and we, we wrote. And uh, I did about, uh, I don't know, uh, 700 radio commercials. It's it's amazing, yes, uh, and mostly uh, mostly, but in the seventies is really was the heyday of that for you. Was that right in sixties or the, the middle sixties into the seventies? Right, and uh, that's right after, during, and after Bob Calvin was on Radio Mystery Theater. He did lots of other things. It, it, well, this way that that makes me happy in some way that you're you're in touch and still uh, the buddies, so to speak. So if you happen to mention uh, that you were on the radio with Everything Old Is New again, you'll uh, <laughs> with Bob in the future. You'll you both will have something to talk about <laughs> new. Yeah. You know? A show I called Commercial Interruptions, <laughs> An Evening of Nothing But. Yeah, and it was terrific. It looked really terrific and a lot of fun. Who created the the routines that you performed? I wrote them. Every one. Was it all you or collaboration? No, they're not old. Uh, what happened was the guy who ran that club. It was a rock and roll club and also folk singers. He had aspirations to be a Broadway producer or something. And he was getting sick, even though he's making a fortune, of, of seeing two different rock groups every single night of the week. And he, he thought he would try something different, and he came to me because he'd heard about me being busy in the commercial business, and he said he wanted to get prize-winning commercials and show them and have me be the master of ceremonies. We found that we couldn't get the, the releases, the waivers for them, because if you're making money at the door and you're not paying the SAG actors a fee, then you can't use them. Hmm. 
So I had in three days to create a show, which was 90 minutes, and I just did it tirelessly, 24-7, you know, using, staying up late doing it. And I wrote all of these things out of my vast experience with producers and directors and other actors and things that happened to us. And I knew these people could execute it all beautifully. And of course, they made certain contributions of their own. And, and certainly, it, it's uh, something that is of interest to me in that by that time, the early 80s, you had been in Breaking Away already, you had been in Popeye, you had done, uh, you know, created the electric company, you'd been on stage before, uh, certainly. You uh, then did this, created this performance, and. I'm just wondering, the live stage uh, for a comedian receiving the instant gratification we heard of, of the applause and so forth has got to be yeah. something that, that brought you back to this and keeps bringing you back to the stage every so often, no? Oh, yeah, there's nothing better than a real live audience, you know. I've done a lot of films and television, and a great many of them without an audience, especially film. A sitcom will often have an audience, but not always. Right, and, and I'll tell you, I've looked back also, and I see in 1964, talking about commercials, you did a silent movie type of commercial for 40 line, and you did it as a Keystone cop, and from yeah. what I understand, you had the opportunity to meet Buster Keaton, who was in the commercial, I think directed the commercial as well, and for you, uh, the word sure means more than it means to the rest of us. Maybe you can explain that a little bit. At 15, I saw Keaton, Chaplin, Langdon, and Lloyd on film for the first time, and I fell in love with all of them, but I loved Keaton best. And all my life, up until that point, when I met him, I'd just been thinking about him and seeing his classic films. And then one day I get this commercial, and here he is. He's Buster Keaton. And I was totally thrilled. And we had a two-day shoot, and on the, sec the first day I said, if I come back tomorrow with a picture of you and a book you wrote, would you sign them? And he said, sure. And I wrote in my, I'm writing a book now about my life. And then I said, the, only, the first and only word I'd ever heard him speak. <laughs> Which is unbelievable that it, re it remained with you. And that certainly is something when you meet your hero like that and influence. I, I presume that he was the one that influenced you with your comedy persona, so to speak, or the others that, you know, as we speak. Well, yeah. I became obviously because I was born into a culture where the show business was all about talk, all about words. Nobody really, very few people ever tried to do visual humor much. In fact, I'm a scholar of this, and I've kept in mind the fact that we had these geniuses like Chaplin and Keaton, and it took a long time before we saw a guy named Jacques Tati, a French comedian who worked mostly in silence. Another 25 years, and there's Bill Irwin, a great stage clown, who was in Popeye with me. And then I added to it this guy, Michael Richards, who worked on Seinfeld, who was great with physical comedy. Yeah. And if, if he had been in... Uh, silent movies, he would have been a star also. So every 20 or 25 years comes somebody along who is a master, or a number of masters, of uh, the silent art of comedy. Yeah, and maybe Dick Van Dyke a little bit too, I don't know, but you know... Van Dyke, yes. You know, Van Dyke also. Was, yeah, I mean, it, but it's so rare, as we've just talked about, and, but it, it's, for somebody, you know, we've talked about this before, this topic, the silent movies, uh, with David, uh, my co-host, and, and he's in the same uh, ballpark as you are with loving uh, Keaton and, uh, and Chaplin and all that, but, you know, for somebody that's listening has not seen uh, these movies and want to give it a shot, would, I don't know, Sherlock Jr. or uh, Steamboat Bill, or, or what would be the, su the suggested entry those into my, this? Those are my two favorite. Oh, there you go. It's okay. because they, uh, moment for moment, there's just more jokes, more funny stuff in them. They're very funny. But if someone and was a lot to... of innovation by Buster, by walking 
down the aisle of a movie theater and walking into the movie. Right, exactly. Which was, uh, which was in the uh, Sherlock Jr., and by the way, lifted by Woody Allen in the Purple Rose of Cairo. Exactly. I was just going to say that. You stole it from me. Good for you. And and uh, and that's what it's all about. Like, that's a good example of everything old is new again, of, of uh, you know, Purple Rose of Cairo, uh, you know, using and building upon what Buster Keaton did. And I think, well, well maybe in a, in a minute or two, and I know that's not fair, but can you describe for us why you felt Buster Keaton, or, and still feel he's so seminal and someone to, you know, use as a foundation to your, you know, experience in life today? or at least comedy? Uh, well, when I saw all of them, uh, there are moments in all of them that I love. Uh, Langdon, who is not the most successful of the four, has little pockets of set pieces, which are just as funny as the others. It's just he never had a long career, and, and his uh, movies weren't at every moment funny with the Chaplin and Keaton. They were. Well, my feeling was... I. Chaplin scared me. He was so artistic, so intelligent. I felt he was smarter than me, smarter than the audience, smarter than anybody, being a genius, and I could admire him from afar. Buster Keaton made me feel he's someone I knew. He seemed like an everyman. He seemed like you could sit down and, and have a beer with him. And there's a lot of, there were more honesty, I felt, in, in Buster's acting. And he rarely, rarely reached for a joke. It didn't seem invented as much as comedy was. It seemed to happen to him. And so he was a writer and an actor and a director. But he always was humble and lovable. And without even using his face as part of the instrument, he could say anything with his body. And did they? And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I just thought he, he was the most genius of them all. And he was very, very innovative in ways of doing movies, as you know. Yes, and I was going to say, did he, it, it, this is something I remember just coming to my, my mind now. And hopefully I get this right. Did he have a competition, so to speak, with Chaplin and the others where they would use less of these cards where the words are on? I forget what they call those cards, but uh, use less yeah. of them to, to explain and tell their story. Is that Was that something that was going around? Well, that, I never read too much about the title cards and uh and Chaplin, I have about six or eight books on each of them. And, but Buster did always say, we tried to cut down on the title things. That's what some, some of my silent films will have maybe 125 title cards. He says, almost anything I could say with a title card, I could say with my body. So he didn't have a lot of it. He didn't have a lot of things that were dialogue translated into a card. Right. And he would try to keep it down, he said, to maybe 50. That really stands out to me, though. Isn't that amazing that, you know, instead of saying help, of course, just a silly example, but, you know, in a card, he's he's able to express that silently. Yeah. And so what a skill. So if you're listening and you've not seen any of these movies, it is definitely worth your while. And you're going to get a smile, there's no doubt. And you may get hooked, i got to tell you. Uh, Steamboat uh, June, um, Bill, I'm, I'm sorry, Steamboat yeah. Bill or Sherlock Jr., just as a to tip your toe in the water, if you will, of silent movies. We'll be back yeah. right after this on Everything Old is New Again with Paul Dooley. Talk some more. Have some fun. Now, back to America's entertainment pop culture talk show, Everything Old is New Again, with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Now, can I help you, sir? Yes, my name is George Kellerman. Oh, I've yes, got a... Mr. Kellerman, one moment, please. Oh, don't tell me one moment, please. I don't have one moment. I was told to come here this morning, and if I don't get the room... We I have your room, Mr. Kellerman, suite 927. I was just getting a message that was left for you. Oh, uh, things certainly have eased up since the transit strike was settled. Ah, here we are. Your luggage arrived from the airport and was sent up to your room. 
Now, if you'll just sign the register. Well, they finally settled. If they knew they were going to settle, why didn't they settle yesterday? <laughs> Are you all right, ma'am? Well, does she look all right? Do you know what this woman has been through? Do you have any idea? Tell him later, George. Help me now. Aha, uh-huh. welcome back to Everything Old is New. Again, do you recognize that? That's a little clip of the out-of-towners. You recognize the voice? Well, yeah, that was Jack Lemon, but also is our guest, Paul Dooley, in her early role there. And uh, I'll tell you, that uh, was, of course, Jack Lemon was the original Felix in the Odd Couple. Um, we'll get to all of this. I'm going to talk a little bit about stage and the connections with Odd Couple and these actors. But, uh, Mr. Dooley or Paul, I would like to, w- wondering, like, you're a young actor. You've got uh, Jack Lemon acting in a scene with you, and you've got all of this to present. Um, I don't know. To me, for me, that would have been a bit intimidating. I'm going to guess it wasn't for you because you were on top of your, your craft for sure. But um, what was that experience like? Well, I was glad to be there, and I love Jack. And uh, I generally don't get intimidated because at that time, I, I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was 30, 35, I don't know, 40. Uh, but after the first three or four or five years in show business, I I didn't have any, uh, you know, nervousness about meeting uh, big names or to being on a stage in front of a thousand people. Uh, I just uh, was pretty relaxed about acting. Many actors are upset backstage. They're nervous. They throw up. They they have all kinds of superstitions, you know. I just walked on stage and I was at home. So I never went through that thing of being having stage fright or anything like that. And I would assume that has to come from confidence in the fact that you've had such experience before because, for example, in 65, uh, on the Broadway production of The Odd Couple, directed by Mike Nichols, originally you were cast as a poker player with Malta Matthau, of course, playing Oscar Madison. And Art Carney people may not remember or know, was the original Felix. Now, yeah. after that, after Art Carney left the show, who replaced him? Paul Dooley, am I right? I was the understudy. And and what was that like to step into the shoes of Art Carney at that time, who I believe by 65 certainly did all the Honeymooners things, had to have been quite revered. He did lots of well, stage work as well. He was much more the star, much more of a star than Matthau at that time. In fact, Odd Couple on Broadway made made uh, Matthau a star. He won the Tony that year. Right. Uh, but a funny thing happened is that Art was an alcoholic. We didn't know that right away when we started running the show. But after only two weeks in New York, he'd miss a night. And it, as you know, it's a tradition in the theater to call in and say, I'm not feeling well, I can't do it. But he never called. Hmm. And, and the cast just guessed that he was in a bar nearby, maybe drunk, and felt, I can't go on tonight, but I'm embarrassed to call. So we never knew why he didn't call, but he never called. So five minutes of curtain, they'd say to me, get into the Felix outfit, you'll be playing Felix. But I did this many, 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 many times, once every two weeks or something, for a long time, and then he disappeared and never came back. We couldn't find him, his agent didn't know where he was. He had checked into a uh, clinic to dry out from alcoholism, and wow. never came back. Wow, isn't that but, incredible? Uh, but I... I didn't feel I had anything to worry about playing the part or any even the poker player because Neil Simon is a genius. He every every line spoken is almost a laugh in an odd couple. The straight lines and the punch lines are both funny because it's based on the difference between the sloppy guy and the neat guy. I, I, I had an interesting story. When I went to my audition, Mike Nichols knew who I was because I had been in Second City and he'd seen that show here in New York and he'd been in the audience a few times. And uh, I had uh, four pages of, of audition, and I memorized it. Uh, I mean, really s- s- 
stone cold memorize all the words. But it's always a good idea to hold the script in case you forget. Uh, but I was very confident. But halfway through the scene, when I had a big line that yelled at, at the Matthau character, at the Oscar character, instead of just being angry on the line, I threw my script high in the air and it fluttered down to the floor. So a moment like that, I've seen Groucho do things like many times, and it's a given in comedy. If you have something important in your hand, you throw it away. It's funny. Uh, Groucho used to get the bill for a dinner with his uh, with Margaret Dumont, and he was, <laughs> I'll take that, and he wadded it up and threw it away. So that's always the laugh. So here I am with his papers on the floor. I get down on my knees, and now I can play the real part of Felix by being neat and picking them up as I do my dialogue. So then at the end of it, they usually wait uh, a while before they see other people, then they call your agent. As soon as I finished, uh, Mike said, you got it, you got the job. And I think that moment of uh, using the papers certainly helped. Well, that has to go back a little bit, even maybe just to the back of your mind as a student. As of course, you just said you knew about Groucho, but I would assume that Buster Keaton and, and his uh, physical uh, you know, use of his body and props, these different things may have subconsciously, or maybe consciously, you tell me, came to play there, um, or maybe it was improv, whatever it might have been, it was in you from all these influences, no? Yeah, that's right. In fact, when I was in Second City, one of the scenes I created, which became a little bit of a classic because I did it for about a year, uh, was a pantomime. Alan Arkin and I did a scene when he was with the company, and it was about two minutes. He was a dentist, and I was a patient, and it was silent, silent comedy. And uh, then he got he got a Broadway show and left the company. I took over and played the dentist with a new patient named Bob Dishy, and. Uh, um, we expanded it to about six minutes. It was all pantomime and very much like a Keaton-type movie. And all the things you can do, you know, to a patient, almost attacking him, really. <laughs> and uh, I also, once I was in high school and had seen the classic uh, comics, a guy and I who owned the projector, who was loved silent comedy, was a scholar, he and I went out on the weekends and made silent movies with custard pies, and, and derbies and top hats and canes and all that stuff. We did it all through high school and college and even in New York. So we made about 20 or 30 short, you know, three-minute uh, uh, films doing imitating our masters, not really identically imitating, but in the genre, you know. Right, right. And then thereafter, use those, I'm sure, here. Didn't you use one to get that? Maybe you did or not. I don't recall. To get that, uh, that, that Buster Keaton uh, commercial or no? No, something. that just happened. They didn't know I loved okay. Keaton. <laughs> by the way, because you're interested in trivia, uh, Barney Martin, who played Seinfeld's dad, was one of the Keystone Cops in that Buster uh, commercial. Yeah. Is that and amazing? another one was um, Avery Schreiber, who was a comedian with Bur Jack Burns. Right, Burns, Burns and Schreiber, yep, yep. Yep, and there, he's, he's from Second City. And he was one of the other cops. There were about five of us or six of us, but those two guys I knew, and uh, they became, they were very good. Hey. By the way, Barney Martin used to be Jackie Gleason's understudy. Uh, Barney Martin was a New York City cop, and he was assigned to stand at the stage door of the Ed Sullivan Theater where, where Gleason shot his show. And he got to know the cast, and he was a funny policeman. And they said, uh, would you consider the possibility of working here and being Jackie's understudy? He doesn't like to rehearse, but you can stand in for him. And he did that. 
for a while with Keith, with uh, with Gleason. That's just an amazing. I had heard that, but I never followed up on that. That's an amazing story, and what a well, he must have had some great stories about Gleason back in the day. Uh, and talk about well, among my idols are Gleason and Sid Caesar too. Oh, uh, Sid Caesar, we did a whole couple of shows on him, and you know, I'll tell you what. My I, just as a, to, to divert a little bit, my dad growing up, my dad uh, in the '60s w- would tell me that Sid Caesar was the funniest man he had, in the world. Whatever he would say, and he just laugh and so forth. Now he's going through a little bit of a struggle here mentally, and he's he's 89 and what have you. I, I go to uh, the home, and on YouTube they've got a number of uh, Sid Caesar skits. Don't you know that yeah. I bring my eight-year-old with me? The three of us are watching Sid Caesar from 1956 doing skits on this and that. You know, uh, He's bringing home Chinese food. His wife has already cooked a steak. They don't uh, know that each have done that, and there's the, the dispute that arises. And honestly, there's my dad laughing so much that my son uh, afterwards says, you know, I never saw Grandpa laugh that much. So that's got to be some, to me, that's some tribute to C. Caesar. I mean, that's just my two cents. Um, in, in my book, I'm writing a moment about being in New York in, in my first year, and the networks had not yet had a, uh, a way in in place to get people to come to their shows, their live shows. They didn't have that thing of people writing in for tickets. So ushers and pages from NBC and CBS will come out on the street in the middle of the day and pass out free tickets, try to bring you in, you know, try to force you into come in and watch a live show. So I saw many of the Caesar live shows and what a privilege that was. Oh, that must have been. That's that must. We we could do a whole show on that. Just what the experience was to see that uh, live and those performances. And and thankfully, I, from what I understand, lots of them are lost. But thankfully, there are quite a few on YouTube. If anyone wants to take a look at that. But uh, uh, back to Paul. And I, uh, I I really want to say that finally. Um, I don't know if we can do this now. We'll come on the other side of the commercial tease that you then continue the Odd Couple connection. Two thousand seven, acted uh, with uh, Jack Klugman. Of course, uh, Oscar. Madison on um, on television in the Sunshine Boys uh, in New, New Jersey. Right. It's interesting you know that because the IMDb and the Google only really list films and television. Right. So that took a little bit yeah, of research. They, they offer and often cover a legitimate theater. I appreciate that. We will be back to discuss that and more right here on Everything Old's New Again. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Attention! Kiss the pavement goodbye, gentlemen. When I'm finished with you, you'll have mud in places you didn't know you had. Yo, I've never been off-road. Well, that's going to change right now. Hello, face. Drop and give me 20 miles. Go, 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 go. Uh, welcome back to Everything Old is New Again. That's Paul Dooley playing Sarge in Cars 1, 2, and 3. He's been in the <laughs> entertainment business for a long time, and we're happy that he has been to share some of those experiences with us here. I'm going to cheat and say and welcome uh, Paul Dooley back right now and say, listen, we've got to have you back if you don't mind. If you will, we'll see uh, if you had a nice time because there's so much more to discuss here. I hate to limit the time, but we're just having a great time with Paul Dooley. Thank you for coming on board. Thank you. 
And here we go. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about some of the people you worked with. And I was just finishing up a little bit about the discussion and the kind of the what I call the odd couple connection here is is certainly you started out with a little bit of uh, we started out with Jack Lemon, the out of towners. We spoke about you being uh, Felix on the Broadway production after Art Carney acting with Walter Matthau, and then we talked about uh, that you were in the Sunshine Boys in 2007 in New Jersey, uh, the performance of uh, that uh, with Jack Klugman, of course, who was also Oscar Madison. So is there any way you could tell us anything about either of those three individuals that maybe is behind the scenes story or an experience or at least your impression of any one of them uh, to give us some some peel back the onion a little bit towards uh, them and their and their experiences? Well, Jack, uh, the secret to Jack being uh, a great comedy, which he did in the series The Odd Couple, is that underneath the surface of his comedy is a great actor. He's really, really a serious, good actor. As you know from when he did Quincy, he was he went from The Odd Couple to Quincy. Right. Uh, but he, uh, he told me an interesting story that I like to repeat to people. He came to New York very early. It must have been the, I don't know, late 40s, early 50s. And he got a ticket to... Death of Salesman, and he hadn't been in theater much or anything back in Philly, where he came from. I guess he had a little experience, but he must have had a uh, yearning to maybe be an actor. Uh, he never told me about any of that part of it, but uh, I bought a ticket. It was something like a dollar and fifty cents to see a Broadway play, and one of the best Broadway plays, the uh, Death of Salesman. He went back four times. He said he couldn't believe how good it was, and it hooked him into being a stage actor. And uh, we had a great deal of fun. We worked over in a little uh, regi- uh, regional theater in uh, New Jersey. Um, Mathau was a little bit of a different story. He was hugely perfect for the part of Oscar Madison. He was born to play the role. And as I mentioned earlier, he won the Tony that year, and it really set him up to be a star. Uh, however, he was very mischievous on stage, and not all the other actors liked it. He would... Uh, play games and he would talk to you while you're delivering your lines. Sometimes an actor on stage underneath a laugh would say to another actor, whisper to him, that went very well. That's a little thing actors might do sometimes. Right. But he used to talk to you while you were delivering your lines and ad-libbing stuff that didn't help you do <laughs> your lines properly. And he would, uh, once he came in and, and uh, someone had opened a... Um, a bag of potato chips with the poker players and they're in the air. He comes in with a beer and he opens one and he shook it up in the wings so it sprays all over the actors and it was a highlight of the play. Picture of it in Life magazine a week or two later. But these kind of things they were very mischievous and very game playing and it's not dorm- normally done on Broadway. It's usually you kind of stick closely to the script and don't change anything. Yeah, so people weren't too happy with seeing or experiencing that I guess, huh? Not really, but then I, but then I uh, started playing the lead opposite him, so I had to put up. With it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he tested your limits, I guess you could say that, right? And uh, another character that you, I don't, you never acted with before. I was interested to see that back in '52 when you graduated from uh, University of West Virginia in Morgantown, uh, that you piled around with and graduated with James Dukas, yes, but but you. Uh, I don't know how, what else to say. I don't think he was in the class with you. But uh, Don Knotts was part of uh, 
part of your experience there. Right I'd say. Part of, yeah. So like, what, I was a freshman. He was a senior, but I got to know Don. There you go. So because only because you're a, a fountain of information here that that we just want to peek a little bit into the behind the scenes. You see Don Knotts on these these movies, and you see, you know the Reluctant Astronaut. You see him on, of course, uh, uh, you know Andy Griffith. But was he driven? Like it's hard to tell from his character what he was behind the scenes. You know, some people the character doesn't seem to be far from what you're seeing on the screen. But I would assume I don't know that he wasn't that character. You know, Barney Fife. But he created such a memorable and Emmy Award winning character. And of course, those movies were great. Um, One of the best. Yeah, I, one of the best characters ever created. I would think so. And 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 but well, I'll tell did you, you something s- about him? Yeah, people don't know. Don, as a young man, maybe fourteen at least, I have a book on him. It's a a book he put out through Duke University, uh, Barney Five, and he was entertaining as a ventriloquist. He had a doll, a bent doll, in his lap, and so he he began comedy early. And uh, by the time he went through high school, he was known around the high school, and that was his college town where we all went to school. When he went to college, he uh, did three years, still doing a lot of comedy and plays and things. He used to write songs and lyrics, and he taught me my first magic trick. And uh, uh, then he then he was drafted, and he only had one year of college to go. But he had done so much amateur acting and and talent things uh, that uh, they put him in special services. And for two years in the Army, he never carried a gun. He never dug a foxhole. He entertained people in Army camps all over the country. And he just, he went to school on that. It became his training ground. And he, every day, he would just travel around the different places, sometimes with a partner, sometimes alone, and uh, create comedy. So by the time I met him, when he came back for his senior, senior year, he was a polished professional comedian and he had it all down, and he would do routines for us, and some of the stuff he even repeated later on the Steve Allen show. But uh, he was just naturally funny, and uh, had a kind of an interesting wrinkle on things. It was a little bit different from all other things. On the Steve Allen show, he's famous for playing a nervous guy. Right. And Steve would say to him on the man on the street interview, he'd say, pardon me, sir, are you nervous? He'd no, no, and obviously <laughs> was. So he was an incredible funny comedian. And I had, he never did he never did nightclubs or Vegas or any of that, but he he had been in that war with the army on Broadway in a small part and in the movie, just a small part. So when it when Andy started his show out there, he just called him and said, Look, Andy, uh, we know each other. Uh, I hear you're doing a show, anything in it for me. He says, Well come on out and talk to the producers. So they hired him right away and he kind of really took over the show and Andy was a straight man. Yeah, and uh, he was it was the funnier one. It's so amazing to see that he, what would you say, cut his teeth? Is that the saying uh, in the Navy? And I read a little something about him. It might be true, might be not. Maybe you know. Is that the ventriloquism wasn't going so well at some points? He was on the Navy ship. He threw it overboard and said, "I could do this on my own." Right, and uh, <laughs> and went from well, there. My, my knowledge is that he was only in the army. Oh, okay. In the in the army. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but yeah. then the, the story maybe may, may have thrown a dummy away. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> what was he personally like? I mean, you know, you were buddies apparently. Then I guess like he was. Uh, was he driven? Was he always talking comedy? Was he sort of? You no, know... he wasn't. He wasn't like a lot of comedians who just couldn't shut up about comedy. He was very, very average. I used to have fun with him because uh, he once showed me the ventriloquist act. And uh, his voice and the dummy's voice were the same voice. (laughs) 
hello, Johnny. Yeah, what is it, Don? <laughs> well, I guess he, I to, he yeah. was married to someone in college, and I, I'd call him up at the house, and he would answer, and I'd say, you know, it was Kay, I think, I forget. And then he'd say, hello, and I'd say, oh, oh hi, oh, hi, Kay, is Don home? No, this is Don. <laughs> <laughs> I used to kid him when he, because his voice was a little high. That's hysterical. Now, you, you acted with, uh, just going to try a broad brush here um, and, and throw some of this out at you and grab it or not, just you know, just to let everybody know that you, you shared this, the screen, so to speak, with, uh, with Don Adams, um, uh, with Robin Williams and Popeye, uh, Runaway Bride, you had Gary Marshall behind the scenes, Fred Willard, uh, you know, with respect to uh, uh, The Mighty, uh, Mighty Wind and Waiting for Guffman. So little, you know... You've you've had uh, experiences with uh, with people that are certainly well known for their craft, but with respect to Fred, we'll leave off on Fred Willard there because the improvisation uh, act and and uh, would you say the improvisation performance that Fred Willard brought uh, and Christopher Guest bring to the the table, and of course you were in Curb Your Enthusiasm, so you got that there with Larry David. Is that yeah. something, I mean, that's got to be like walking on fire or something. You really got to have your wits about you, but I'm sure it could be the most rewarding uh, experience there is, no, this improv? Well, it is because you're being a writer as well as an actor when you improvise. You know, someone has to have written it because right. it's there. And so, if you improvise, you help write it, help write the scene. Uh, um, everyone in Chris Guest's movies pretty generally could improvise. Maybe one or two of them might just be regular actors. Right. But of course, uh, he's a comic genius. I met him when he was seventeen. Uh, his mother was an agent, and she was my agent. She had been recommended uh, to me by Alan Arkin, and he was seventeen. I met him. We did a little improvisational show for PBS, uh, a lot of the improvisers together, and he had a small part in it, had a guitar, played a few, played a few uh, uh, areas uh, where he played his guitar, and a few lines here and there, but it was a small part. But I knew then he had a big talent. Here's a bit of trivia, he has a one-day part, as I do. I had a two-day part, he had a one-day part, in the first Death Wish. And his mother is a casting director, so she cast me, her, her, her uh, client and her son, and he has a nice little moment in Death Wish, the first one. And then before he's a genius, he's an incredible comic genius. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time here for this week, but we will be back next week with Paul Dooley. Talk all things pop culture, entertainment, right here. Everything old is new again.